0: The very word disaster came to be synonymous with Union Naval Operations in Texas.
1: Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share their view on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkoski. And I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. Today we talk about Texas and the Civil War. But first, we should talk about why there was a Civil War. Alright, maybe that's a little too big a subject. We all remember from 8th grade history that the southern states seceded from the Union over slavery, right? Well, that's too simple. It was states' rights, wasn't it? Was it tariffs? Was it Abraham Lincoln? Why was Texas involved in the Civil War? But first, what's your favorite film by Stephen Tobolowsky? The amazing Texas actor Stephen Tobolowsky?
2: That's the one! You mean... Ned? Ned Ryerson? Needle-nose Ned from
1: Groundhog Day? That's the one. My favorite is his wonderful turn in the movie Sneakers with Robert Redford. My voice is my passport? Verify me? My favorite is Ned. Ned Ryerson
0: from Groundhog Day.
1: Bing! Bing! So let's talk about the Civil War and why Texas was involved Mike, this question is a lot more complicated
2: than you think it is, because many people still have really passionate opinions about the Civil War and its causes. And it's a lot more complicated than it actually needs to be. The short, pat answer that you gave is the correct one. The Civil War was about slavery. Texas and the other southern states clearly laid out their reasons for seceding by issuing declaration of causes documents when they seceded. You can read a lot of these online, but it's pretty much they pretty much make clear that the only states rights that, that really mattered to them concerned the expansion and protection of slavery. If you read a lot of the writings of the time by the major figures in the Confederacy, such as Confederate President Jefferson Davis and Vice President Alexander Stevens, they made it very clear, even if they backtracked later, that slavery was the heart of the issue. And Texas did have
0: one unique position in their causes for secession that had nothing to do with slavery. No, it's not that Texas had some special cause or right to secede.
2: That's a question for another time.
0: The Declaration of Causes in Texas specifically cited the inability of the government to adequately defend the frontier as a cause for secession. But this didn't have anything to do with states' rights, and is really an argument against it. Again, it wasn't the main cause. Historian James Smallwood points out that the Declaration of Causes has 2,287 words, of which 85 are about frontier defense. That's, that's less than 4% of the document. The rest are about slavery.
1: All of this is to say that the escalating crises that led to the war had everything to do with slavery and the South's hardening perception of Northern attacks on what is euphemistically referred to as that peculiar institution. By the time Lincoln was elected, the majority of the people in the South were unwilling to believe what he said, which was that he wasn't going to touch slavery where it existed. They only believed what the extremists said he was going to do, and that there was a vast conspiracy to destroy their way of life by ending slavery. They were willing to believe this so badly that they left the Union and started the most destructive war in a American history. So how was Texas affected by the Civil War? South Carolina succeeded right after
2: Lincoln was elected in 1860, and Texas was the seventh state to follow in February of 1861, and this was despite Governor Sam Houston's efforts to prevent them leaving the Union. There was quite a bit of opposition to secession, with large parts of North and West Texas having strong Unionist sentiments. Wardens start immediately, but tensions continued to build as state forces wanted to take over federal military installations. Nearly a quarter of the entire United States Army was actually stationed in Texas, and they were commanded by General David E. Twiggs, who was from Georgia. Texas state troops, led by Ranger Captain Ben McCulloch, confronted Twiggs in San Antonio and demanded control of federal property and military equipment. Twiggs was personally for secession, but he didn't think he had the authority to give up federal assets. Eventually, he did end up surrendering rather than fight with the people of the state, and Texas got millions of dollars worth of valuable military equipment. If it had gone differently, the war could have started in San Antonio, but as we all know, it happened two months later on April 12th at Fort Sumter in South Carolina. Even though a quarter of Texans didn't vote for secession, the majority of fighting-age Texans actually accepted the results, and they did serve in one way or another in the Confederate military.
0: In all, between 60 and 90,000 Texans served in the Confederate Army. Only around a third of all Texans, though, went to the main theaters of war in the East. Most of the men who served in the Confederate Army remained in Texas, either on the coast, the frontier, or serving in the campaigns in areas bordering Texas.
1: There were a number of notable commanders who came from Texas, but only one native-born Texas reached the rank of general during the war. Washington County native Felix Huston Robertson. He served at the bombardment of Fort Sumter, which started the Civil War and became a general by 1864. After the war, he lived in Waco, where he died in 1928, the last living Confederate general. Most of the Texas generals, like Robertson's father, Jerome, were born in other states and had moved to Texas. Even famous Texas Ranger Captains Lawrence Sull Ross and Henry McCulloch, who later became generals, were born in other states. The most significant generals from Texas were probably
2: Ben McCulloch and Albert Sidley Johnson. McCullough, who was Henry's older brother, was a Texas Ranger legend who had followed Davy Crockett to Texas, had commanded one of the cannon at San Jacinto, he'd fought the Indians, and served in the Mexican War. He was killed early in the Civil War in 1862 at the Battle of Pea Ridge in Arkansas.
0: Albert Sidley Johnson was a West Point graduate who'd gone to Texas in 1834 and fought in the Revolution. He eventually became General-in-Chief as well as Secretary of War in the Republic and served in the Mexican War and in the U.S. Army before the Civil War. In 1861, he was given command of all Confederate troops in the western part of the Confederacy. He was killed in Tennessee at the Battle of Shiloh in 1862 and was the highest-ranked officer on either side killed in the Civil War.
1: Most of the Texans who served in the war, though, were common soldiers. The most famous Texan unit of the war was Hood's Texas Brigade, a hard-fighting unit who Robert E. Lee called My Texans. The brigade was commanded by John Bell Hood, a West Pointer who served in Texas before the war and would advance from captain to general, losing a leg and an arm in the process. 4,000 men served in the brigade, but only 700 came home. Some other famous units from Texas included Terry's Texas Rangers, which was one of the most effective cavalry units of the war, the Walker Greyhounds, Walls Legion, and the Benavides Regiment, led by Colonel Santos Benavides of Laredo, the highest-ranking Tejano of the war. While doing research on my history in Texas and the early Polish settlers, I learned many stories of young European men who had volunteered to serve in the Confederate Army. They'd only been in America for a short amount of time, just a couple of years. And then as they were captured and put into Union prisoner of war camps, they were given the option to swear allegiance to the Union and fight as Union soldiers. And then again, several of these men were captured again by the Confederates and placed into prisoner of war camps, demonstrating just how complicated this war was. Well, not
2: everybody in the Texas fought for the Confederacy, in addition to these men that Mike just talked about. While many of the Unionists in the state joined the army to serve on the frontier, or just attempted to remain neutral during the conflict, about 2,000 left the state and served in the Union army. The most prominent Texans who went to the north were politicians Andrew J. Hamilton and Edmund C. Davis. Hamilton was appointed military governor of occupied Texas, and Davis would become a general commanding the 1st Texas Cavalry Union Regiment. Both became Republican governors during the Reconstruction period. Despite the large number of Texans who served in the military during the war... For the most part, Texas
0: wasn't impacted by major conflict like Virginia, Tennessee, or Mississippi there were no major battles fought on Texas soil. In fact, the biggest battles that Texans fought in were outside of Texas. In 1862, the Confederacy launched a significant campaign to seize control of the New Mexico Territory,
1: mostly using Texas troops. If you've ever seen the very long and great movie, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, these are all the battles that the main characters keep getting caught up in. That campaign failed because
0: the Confederates weren't able to follow up on battlefield victories or keep themselves supplied.
1: The biggest battle fought by Texans and near Texans, but not actually in Texas, was the Battle of Mansfield, south of Shreveport, Louisiana, in 1864. Union forces tried to invade up the Red River so that they could further isolate Texas from the rest of the Confederacy. They were defeated in Mansfield by troops from Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, and even Cherokee Confederates from Indian Territory. Most of the action in Texas during the war occurred on its fringes, on the
2: Gulf Coast and on the frontier. And this is where most of the service of Texans during the war happened.
1: It's interesting that even though one of the major complaints Texans had about the federal government was that they failed to adequately protect the frontier, the Confederate government never allocated adequate resources to properly defend it. In his book, Frontier Defense in the Civil War, historian David Paul Smith says that frontier defense was equal to that of the antebellum days and superior to that of the immediate post-war years. During the war, Indian raids continued, though not as frequently as immediately before or after the war. Mexican bandits and revolutionaries like Juan Cortinas were active along the border. As the war went on, though, rangers and state troopers had to deal with outlaws, deserters, and draft dodgers who sought to prey on defenseless settlers. Among these outlaws, though,
0: were legitimate Unionist partisans. As we said before, most Unionists tried to stay out of the war, but as it dragged on, especially when the South passed draft laws, this became more and more difficult. Unionists were arrested and harassed, had their property seized or destroyed, and were even killed by pro-Confederacy Texans. The largest concentrations of Unionists were in the German, Czech, and Polish communities of the Texas Hill Country, as well as in the far north counties along the Red River. After 1863, several violent incidents resulted in the deaths of large groups of Unionists, most notably the massacre of German Unionists at the Nueces and the mass hanging of North Texas Unionists at Gainesville. This pushed many formerly neutral Texans into open opposition to the Confederacy. By 1865, bands of partisans were operating in the frontier or across the Rio Grande, as well as in Indian Territory, what's now Oklahoma. This sad conflict between Unionist and secessionist Texans would not end with the war, but carried on into the Reconstruction.
2: The most important theater of the war in Texas was on the coast. Okay, some Civil War history. Why was this so important? Well, think back to 8th grade. Mike and Scott, do you remember what one of the main northern strategies was for defeating the Confederacy? Uh, Besides
0: defeating rebel
2: armies in the field? It was called the Anaconda Plan. The plan was to cut off the South from the rest of the world, and then cut each region off from each other by slicing up the Confederacy. So the South's economy, if you remember, was completely dependent on slave labor crops, most importantly cotton. It had very little manufacturing and relied on imports for almost all manufactured items, from cloth to steel. That was why tariffs were such a sticking point, since they taxed imports and forced the South to depend on northern manufactured goods. The North knew that the South was going to have to get all of its military equipment, trade goods, and even a lot of its necessities like cloth and food, from Europe, and that meant that they had to blockade the coast and cut off parts of the Confederacy to keep goods from
1: flowing from one region to the other. This made controlling the Texas coast, at least initially, vital to the Union War effort. In 1861 and 1862, the ports and fortifications at Indianola, Port Lavaca, Sabine Pass, and Aransas Pass were all shelled by the U.S. Navy. Union forces tried to capture Corpus Christi, but were defeated. They did capture Galveston for a few months at the end of 1862, but Confederates recaptured it on January 1, 1863, and it remained open until the end of the war. It was the last major southern port still operational. Woo, Galveston! Woo, Galveston! <laughs> The biggest problem with blockading
0: the Texas coast, though, was that even if the Northern Navy stopped every blockade runner leaving a Texas port, they still couldn't stop the flow of cotton from Texas or goods into the state, because they couldn't blockade the Rio Grande or the border with Mexico. At the time, Mexico was occupied by French forces and ruled by a puppet emperor. There was no incentive at all for Mexico to discontinue trade with Texas. Cotton could flow out of Texas over the border at Brownsville and be shipped out of Matamoros just across the Mexican border, and the U.S. ships All they could do is just watch, helplessly. Confederate agents and even troops operated in northern Mexico, protecting the trade lines. There were several attempts by the Union forces to cut off the Matamoros trade, and they even captured Brownsville for a while. Texans just shifted operations to Laredo and Eagle Pass until Brownsville was recaptured in 1864. Historian and noted Civil War preservationist Edward Cotham wrote that federal campaigns to capture Texas turned out to be some of the least productive military operations of the Civil War, and that time and time again, the North squandered opportunities. Opportunities. This resulted in continuing losses until the very word disaster came to be synonymous with Union naval operations in Texas.
2: The North found more success in just cutting Texas off from the rest of the Confederacy. They successfully cut the South in half in 1863 when they finally gained control of the entire Mississippi River with the Siege of Vicksburg. This was one of the turning points of the war. Also, we talked about the Red River campaign earlier in the Battle of Mansfield. That was another attempt to cut Texas off. The most famous attempt to further isolate Texas was probably the second attack on Sabine Pass. This is the mouth of the Sabine River, which forms the Texas-Louisiana border. The Navy had destroyed the Sabine Forts in 1862, and they planned to mount an even more ambitious invasion at the same spot in 1863. A large force of 5,000 troops and 18 transports, supported by four gunboats, planned to force the pass again, destroy the forts, seize the town of Sabine, and occupy southeast Texas. The fortifications at Sabine Pass had been rebuilt and were manned by 46 Irish immigrants under the command of Captain Dick Dowling, a 25-year-old Irish saloon keep from Houston. On September 8th, the Union force tried to sail through Sabine Pass, and in a 40-minute battle, Dowling's men disabled two of the gunboats, captured over 300 Union sailors and turned back the invasion fleet. It was an incredible victory for the South and yet another one of those disastrous Union naval operations in Texas. Local residents presented medals to Dowling and his men after the battle. These medals were later approved by a special act of the Confederate Congress and are thought to be the only military decoration issued by the Confederacy.
1: In the end, though, military operations in and around Texas didn't affect the overall direction of the war. The South was ground down to defeat after four years. In April of 1865, Robert E. Lee surrendered in Virginia, and Joseph Johnson surrendered in North Carolina, and the war was seemingly over. In Texas, things had been quiet since late 1864. Federal troops only occupied Brazos Island at the mouth of the Rio Grande, and forces on the border even had a gentleman's agreement not to fight. In May, news of surrenders in the East reached Texas, but the commander of the Trans-Mississippi Army, Edmund Kirby Smith, vowed to keep fighting and rejected calls to surrender. On May 13th, a full month after Lee surrendered at Appomattox, federal troops attacked Texas forces at Palmito Ranch near Brownsville. The Texans, led by famous Ranger Captain John S. Ripford and Santos Minovitas, counterattacked and beat the Union force. This small skirmish was the last battle of the Civil War, but had no effect on the war's outcome. It's a myth that the Confederates learned of Lee's surrender from Yankees captured at Palmito Ranch. Kirby Smith actually knew about the surrender as early as April 20th.
0: Throughout Texas, things were falling apart. There were riots, desertion, and just general lawlessness spreading throughout the state.
2: Yeah, the rioters actually stole $16,000 from the Texas uh, gold depository in Austin.
0: The Trans-Mississippi Army was 60,000 strong on paper, but fewer than half of them were still around, and many of those that were left were on the verge of mutiny or just walking out themselves. On June 2nd, Kirby Smith surrendered his forces, and on June 19th, federal occupation forces arrived, and just like that, the Civil War in Texas was
1: over. So let's bring it home and talk about what's important. This is a very difficult subject for a lot of reasons because, as we stated earlier, people are so very passionate about these subjects, even today. So why is it so important that we talk about the Civil War? I think first we need to look at the history that we learn. Those who don't learn from history are always going to be doomed to repeat it. But it's even worse for those who do learn the wrong lesson in history. In a whole lot of counties in Texas, at least east of I-35, there's a courthouse in the center of town, And in front of practically every one, there's a statue of a Confederate soldier, usually with the words, honoring locals who served. We're not arguing that it isn't important to honor the Confederate dead, because just about every community in Texas had them. But do you know how many statues to Unionist Texans there are? There are three. One in Denison, where Unionist sentiment was strong, an obelisk to the victims of the Nueces Massacre in Comfort, and a broken cemetery statue in Milam, near Tyler. It
0: was vandalized in 1973.
1: There are almost no statues to Abraham Lincoln in the state, but there are still several statues and memorials to Jefferson Davis, including at the University of Texas.
2: And there's great controversy about that still to this day. And there's controversy and debate about new memorials that they're putting up to the Confederacy throughout the state. There's debates about these memorials, about the exhibits about the Civil War, about books that are in our schools and what's taught in the classrooms, and these still come up all the time. And every time, it seems like, there's an argument. Words like southern heritage is used on one side, and racism is used on the other side, and neither seem, neither side can seem to understand why the other side is so passionate about their advocacy or opposition. And I'd argue it's because so many people have learned Bad history about secession, the Civil War, and Reconstruction. The Lost Cause ideology is still taught to a large extent to our students. Scallywag and carpetbagger, the- you know, history of the Reconstruction is still st- taught to our students in the schools. The idea that slavery wasn't the cause of the Civil War is still taught to the students in our schools and to and to people, and they read these things. The fact is, in 2009, a survey showed that a third of Texans thought the state still had the right to secede, and that survey is was in response to our sitting governor seeming to say that Texas could do so, and he later back- backtracked. It's very telling. It's important to understand the true facts of history so we don't take the wrong lessons from them. This is not to say that people don't have a right to have passionate opinions about things. They just need to understand them. And it's not a means of passing judgment on people. We're not saying these things to to talk bad about people who are... who are proud of their past and their family history and who take good lessons from the heroes of the civil war on the Confederate side and people who served very bravely and people who say, and, and you know, the idea is not that these people did serve for the cause that they, that they believed in and they fought for the cause they believed in. So we're not passing judgment on that part. We're pa- I'm passing judgment on the part where they fought for freedom or they fought for liberty. If they fought for the Confederacy, they were not fighting for those things for a large portion of the people in this country at that time, which was the people who were enslaved. They were not. And so to say that they were doing those things for those causes is wrong. To say they believe those causes is fine. Um, I have family that fought on both sides of the Civil War, the ancestors. And I have I know people and that are Civil War reenactors, and they, they're they proud of that. And, and again, that's preserving history. That's not fulfilling, you know, that's not promoting a cause. That's just preserving history. So we're not badmouthing that stuff. And we're not badmouthing Texas for the decisions that it made. We just want people to understand through the lens of history, the true facts of what happened in the Civil War. And the facts are very clear about what happened. It's just the things that have come since then that have colored our interpretation of this.
0: You know, we also, we just need to talk about the Civil War in Texas because it's important to give us an understanding of what Texas was like in 1865 when the Reconstruction period began. Unlike nearly every other Confederate state, Even though there was personal hardship to individual families and large numbers of men were coming home from faraway battlefields, there was almost no sign that a war had really happened here, and there was a perception that they had never really been beaten by their enemy. In many ways, Texas in 1865 was the same as it had been in 1860, but the world they found themselves in was so very, very different. This conflict of perception would have a lasting effect on the second part of our story, Texas during Reconstruction.
1: So we'll see when we talk later about Reconstruction. It comes to be known as the Second Civil War. So in conclusion, slavery sucks. (laughs) Texas is great. We love her very much. Warts and all. Woo, Texas. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstaple.com. We'd love to hear from you. So follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast or go to brainstaple.com and leave us some feedback. Be sure to indicate whether it's okay for us to mention you on the show. You can follow us individually. I'm Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two ends.
0: And I am Scotticus on Twitter.
1: If you like the show, tell your friends and please leave a review on iTunes. That really helps us out. We hope you join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.